Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 21st of July. I'm Robert Barwick. I'm joined today by CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, supply and demand is the big lie that is about to crash Australia's house prices and banks. And Turnbull's Home Affairs Ministry brings UK terrorism to Australia. So first, supply and demand is the big lie that is about to crash Australia's banks. Now, Craig, before we get into it, just for the benefit of the viewers, um, we don't provide information for inf information's sake, right? We're not, this, this is not an investment service where we, you can get investment advice from us. Um, it's probably worth paying attention to, but that's not what it's about. It's about changing the system. So before we go into this, I want to appeal to the, the viewers, get involved in the CEC's mobilisation on this subject, which of course is our mobilisation for a solution to the Australian financial crisis that we're actually in, but it's about to get worse and worse and worse and head to a full-blown banking crisis. Robbie, I think it's important to note for some of our viewers, we're actually a political party, so we're campaigning to change policies of the nation. We're not merely a lobby group. Yep. So it's a big difference. So what people can do is this, and I'll repeat it at the end of the show. You'll see a link um, to, if you're watching on YouTube, to our petition. If you haven't signed our petition yet for Glass-Steagall, sign it. Every time you sign it, emails go to members of parliament to tell them we need a Glass-Steagall separation in Australia. And we'll elaborate a bit more on that on what that is. Call in and get copies of our literature. So, for instance, the main thing we're distributing nowadays is Australia sleepwalking to economic Armageddon. It includes a lot of... Uh, information and graphs on the bubbles, the financial bubbles that are threatening Australia, like the derivatives bubble and the housing bubble, which we're going to go through more in a minute. Call in and get that. The CEC has also just prepared a formal proposal to members of parliament for how, for why Australia needs Glass-Steagall and how it would work, right? And you can call in and get that and take that to your member of parliament because they need to, they've, they've, they've doubtless heard about it, they need to look at the details and think about this carefully. A lot of members of Parliament, Craig, are starting to support this. Finally, call in. Everything we, dis we discuss on the CEC report is covered in our weekly publication, the Australian Alert Service. Call in and get a free copy of that if you want to know more. But to, what we, a lot of what we're going to go through today is in this, especially our second subject. Yep. The main thing is get involved. Yeah, Robbie, look, I think for our, for our, for our new viewers, when we talk about Glass-Steagall, we're talking about stopping the too big to fail banks, our big four in particular, from having access to depositors' funds to speculate to with. Gamble. To That's gamble right. with. Now, this is a recent phenomenon of the last 20 to 30 years where the banks have got bigger and bigger, and in 2008, you saw the global financial crisis, which is, in fact, the breakdown of the banking system because the bank speculation blew out in Lehman Brothers and so yep, forth yep. in the United States. Now, nothing's been solved since that time. So what we're calling for is very simple that you should have a retail banking system which protects people's deposits so that the banks can't speculate with those deposits. And when you have a retail, a merchant and investment banking side, that can still exist, but if people want to put their money, not as deposits, but as investments into those bank, that type of banking, then they know full well what's going on. If they do so at their own risk and without government protection. The government only protects the part of the financial system that's not a casino. So it's not that's a very complicated idea, works. Robbie. It's a very straightforward idea, but without it, everyone's uh, deposits are at risk yep. and there's a lie being propagated by the government which is that people's deposits are safe because they're guaranteed up to a quarter of a million dollars. The problem with that is that the IMF and other international financial bodies have clearly said that this would not apply to the big four because the big four's deposits are too big to 
the government wouldn't be able to come up with the money. That's correct. That's right. So you need to change the system. That's what we're fighting for, a policy change. So yes, viewer, get involved. So here's the latest predicates on why this is so important and why when we talk about um, our policies, we're premising it on the fact that a crash will happen, right? Not as a theoretical thing. We are premising on a crash is going to happen. This is what has to be done, and it can be done beforehand. So here's, so like I said, here's the latest. The big issue in Australia, a few weeks ago, Craig, we described it as a sort of Damocles hanging over Australia is the property bubble. Because when the property bubble, it is a bubble, and when it bursts, it'll take the banks with it, like happened around the world in 2008. So the the latest news to come out is from the Australian census that happened last year, that when it finally happened. The census revealed something quite shocking, that supply and demand in the Australian property market is rubbish. 11% of Australian homes are empty. That's 200,000 more than the last census, right? 11 or well, 11.2% or something like that. We'll put a graph up on the screen. Um, some experts who like to you know, swim in denial um, claim, oh, that's Hollywood holiday homes. <laughs> no, it's not holiday homes, it's rubbish. Now, the two cities where house prices, Craig, are rising the fastest in Australia are Melbourne and Sydney. Now, we'll put a graph on the screen that shows how fast they rose last year. Sydney, 18%, Melbourne, 13%, right? Those are the two cities where the difference between empty homes in the last census and this census is the greatest. They've they've gone up. The number of empty homes has increased by 19% in Melbourne and 15% in Sydney. In the United Kingdom, this practice is called land banking, right? And And there's a good reason for that. You keep, the reason to keep homes empty is because all you're interested in is the capital gain and you don't want to have the problem of having to manage a house for renters and whatever because the rent, your income you'll get will never match that capital gain. And, and just for instance, for those, in terms of Sydney, an 18% price increase in Sydney last year means that for the median home in Sydney, the value went up by more than $100,000. Rents would never match that, mm. ever. Right, you know, expensive rents are like thirty to forty thousand dollars. Your hundred thousand dollars, forget about it. Um, so, the problem is, of course, the practice of keeping homes empty to capitalise on that contributes to prices going up, right? Because there's less homes on the market, it looks like more demand. You know, like the the demand exceeds the supply, right? But it's a fa- my point is, it's a fake demand exceeding the supply because of this fake problem. These are not, this is not real um, demand. Uh, so it pushes up house prices. It also pushes up rents because there's less homes available for renting, right? And it actually hurts in the long term everybody, but the owners think, oh, good, we've got this. We're taking this and taking it all the way to the bank. However, there's always a sting in the tail. Now, with so many things, Craig, with the financial markets, when you have these props, I call them, or ruses that help push the market up, the very thing that can help push a rising market up makes a crash worse when it happens. And what, let me just explain it. If 11% of houses in Australia are empty, it means the natural flaw in the market is smaller than it should be. Mm-hmm. The real demand is smaller than it, than, it, than it appears, right? So how does that work? Well, if prices start to fall, people in Australia who own their own homes, they are going to go to extraordinary lengths to keep those homes. They will skip payments, or they'll skip meals, sorry, so they can keep making their payments on their mortgages so they can keep their homes. 
that the, the, the last thing they want to do is lose their home. But if you're an investor and it's an empty property, you don't kind of care about that. Prices start to fall, you're there for the capital gain, bang, you're out of there, right? And that's 11% that can go straight away. And the comparison I compare it to is the electricity price. Sorry, the, um, the petrol price. Before petrol pr oil prices started crashing, remember how high they got, mm. right? Sky high, and we were told they were supply and demand. They were never supply and demand, it was speculation. And when the speculative bubble in oil burst, the prices crashed, and look where they are now compared to what they were. It was never, ever supply and demand. And that's the same phenomenon that's going to happen to the um, Australian property market. You're, you're talking about prices per litre of petrol, like only landed going from $1.60 a litre, like you're in Melbourne, to $1.06 last week. Yep. Now, how's that supposed to happen, Robbie, if there's, you know... That, well, that, we, stopped, we stopped consuming oil or petrol yeah, all of a sudden, people rubbish. It was people never based trade. on demand. That's right. And that's, that's the big lie. So, and the, what happens is the people that are apologists for the property market keep saying, no, 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 it's demand, it's demand, it's demand. <coughs> that's why Australia's different from the rest of the world. No... We're not different from the rest of the world. Rob, just can I just mention something here? Because we had some friends come back from Ireland just recently and they stayed in a B&B. Now, this B&B, before the Irish property crash, was valued at $1.5 million by the banks. Yeah. Now, the other day, the bankers came to the owner of that property and he'd taken out a $200,000 mortgage on that property. And basically, the, the value of the property is now... $200,000, and they offered him 7,000 euros to move out. And he said, of course, where am I going to live? Yeah. Now, that's from 1.5 billion million down to 200,000. And people say a property crash isn't possible. And Craig, the, um, the other thing about Ireland is it's uh, there's two countries that are most similar to Australia in terms of our housing market and our banks connected to the housing market, Ireland and Canada. You've given us the Irish example. When we come back after the break, we'll talk about Canada. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing supply and demand is the big lie that is about to crash Australia's house prices. So before the break, Craig, you mentioned Ireland. Let's talk about Canada, which is very similar. We'll put a graph on the screen there that shows how the Australian property bubble and the Canadian property bubble are the biggest bubbles as, as a proportions of GDP of all the major bubbles in the last more than a decade or so, right, in the last period. Now, the graph also shows China. Um, that, that's a different kettle of fish. It's, that just refers to the amount of credit that's, that's extended in China. The difference is what it's invested in, and it's not a property bubble, right? And so we would argue that particular line shouldn't be in there, but that's fine. Look at, look at Australia and Canada. 200% of GDP compared to the US property bubble in 2008. We've got to 160% of GDP. Well, Canada's bubble is starting to shake. Um, since March, the number of houses sold in Canada has fallen 14%. So unlike Australia, where we're still getting those big turnovers in the, um, the, the weekend auctions in Canada, the sales are plummeting. The average price of Canadian houses has fallen 10% since April. Now, what's extraordinary about that is that's not uniform. Most of Canada, the average prices are actually incrementally rising. Those price falls have been in two cities, Vancouver and Toronto, which have been the centre of their property bubble. Vancouver is often compared to, they are the Sydney and Melbourne of Canada, mm -hmm. right? And so the actual fall is more than 10% in those cities. So these are the fees, this has just happened, and there was a, there was a hiccup with a, with a mortgage bank a couple of months ago that went under, etc. 
Um, this is the beginning of something big happening in Canada. You can bet your bottom dollar the authorities there are scrambling to try and do something about it. Whether they can do something short term or not remains to be seen. Interest rates is not an option for them, Craig, because their interest rates were half a percent, and now the recent the Bank of Canada has raised it to three quarters of one percent. Ours are still one and a half percent, but there's no fat there to do the normal trick that central banks do of dropping interest rates. So it remains to be seen whether Canada can arrest this. If Canada can't arrest this, because this is gravity that's taken hold of these things, mm -hmm. then watch out for a big um, shockwave to go around the world, and we're going to be vulnerable to that. And we have our own problems too. On a related note, um, there are other signs of the global market, stock market getting very shaky. Now, at the start of this year, we reported on this program that there's in the United States, a new bubble has appeared that's even bigger than the 2008 mortgage bubble, which is the corporate debt bubble. US non-bank corporations have borrowed, they've doubled their debt, more than doubled their debt since 2008, but they haven't borrowed to invest in plant and equipment and expansion of their businesses. They've borrowed to buy back shares largely, which is why this US share market is artificially high. And in fact, I'll put a graph on the screen now that shows the US share market now is higher then as a in terms of the parameters of it then um the, the 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 biggest bubbles we've had in recent times in the stock market i think it's also important robbie to note that with the stock market today you have enormous numbers of financial companies yep. and tech companies and so forth as opposed to say 50 years ago where you had lots of productive, productive companies, companies that were producing real physical goods so the nature of the stock market has completely changed and we've now moved into more like a financial casino and, and the that, turnover of a and, casino. And, and that graph shows that. So anyway, here's, here's the thing. There's, the IMF shocked everyone at the start of the year by saying that with the US corporate debt bubble, defaults could hit 20%. And what they shocked, why that shocked everybody is because defaults never got that high in 2008 with the smaller mortgage bubble. The total size of the mortgage bubble was $11 trillion in 2008. We're talking about $14 trillion bubble in corporate debt. And 20% defaults is, an, is alarming. And what you tend to see is, is little, it's like an iceberg, right? Little bits shave off at the side first. So this week, a Texas private equity fund called Enervest wiped out its entire $2, trillion, $2 billion value. And it's actually the, the only time a, a, a private equity fund worth more than a billion dollars has ever been wiped out like this. So this happened in Texas this week. A lot of investors around the world, including Canadian pension funds and whatever, lost their money. Um, they were invested, Craig, in those companies in the US that started up to capitalise on the high oil prices. Right? So this is a result of that bubble bursting. This has now hit this, this private equity fund. And it, it's very similar to what happened, I remember in 2007, end of July 2007, an American hedge fund called the Alpha Fund attached to Bear Stearns went under and it was the first sign of the crisis that was about to, to brew. Um, that fund had like Princess Margaret Hospital invested in it in Western Australia, Victorian Teachers Super Fund invested in it. Everyone was shocked. What's happening to the financial system here? And then once that happened, everyone paid attention to Bear Stearns. You can see this in the movie, The Big Short, and it was the beginning. This is, this is July, August 2007. It was the beginning of a crisis. It's got bigger and bigger and bigger, and by September 2008, blew up the whole world. Um, Anyway, Craig, my question for you is, you've, you've recently given presentations on Franklin Roosevelt, right? Um, he dealt with an economic collapse the right way, properly, as opposed to what happened in the 2008 crash, right? Which, was, which has set us up for what we're in now. So 
For the viewers, as scary as a crash seems, why is it nothing to be feared if you handle it right? Well, Robbie, Franklin Roosevelt was dealing with a, with a massive crash, crash at the time he was inaugurated on the 4th of March 1933. The entire stock market had been shut down. The Chicago Board of Trade had been shut down. 46 of the 48 states had declared bank holidays. The entire country was frozen as a result of the speculation built up under the, what's called the Mellon and Coolidge bubble. Now you had enormous amounts of money in stock speculation in the stock market and basically it just fell over and that's what happens with bubbles. So Roosevelt came in, he was dealing with fear in the population and people can remember this, this, this uh, speech of him where he says there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And what he was saying is that, look at the basic fundamentals of our economies are still there. We are still producing goods, we have the means to produce things, but we have to re-harness the credit of the nation and we have to direct that credit into productive activities. And did, he, did he leave it up to the free market? No, absolutely not. I mean, you had this policy of laissez-faire. You don't interfere with the market. Let everything play itself out, hands off. Right? And this is why people, Wall Street particularly, hated Roosevelt. Because when he, when he gave his inauguration address, he says, I am taking over to deal with this crisis as if we were invaded by a foreign foe. And he meant every, work on, every uh, word of word it. Of it. The thing, Robbie, is that Franklin Roosevelt, his, his uh, great-grandfather was very closely uh, good friends with uh, Isaac, uh, sorry, his great-grandfather Isaac Roosevelt was very close friends with Alexander Hamilton, the founder of the American system of political economy. So Franklin Roosevelt was a, a student of the American system. He wrote a thesis uh, in his university years on Alexander Hamilton. So he knew how you run an economy uh, using American system principles, which is completely opposite to British system principles. Now, Craig, so, sorry to cut you off. We're going to have to keep that as a teaser to the audience. You just made a video on this presentation. People should call in and, and get a copy of that if they want to. Right? Yeah, Rob, Rob, because it's, what we're dealing with is a crisis. People have to realise we have to do a 180-degree turnaround in people's thinking, and I think shock, it shocked people when I gave people that presentation because it's completely different to the way that people are brainwashed today into thinking. And that's how Roosevelt approached the crisis. He completely upended the British system of political economy and he just, he won the people. And if you don't leave it up to the free market, you can solve this stuff very lawfully and logically. Bang, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. If yeah. you leave it up, what they did in 2008, they bailed out the banks, you know, privatised profits, socialised losses, but let the banks keep making their own decisions and that's why we're in the mess we are today. That's right. You can't uh, do that. The problem is, and I think we've referred to it on this program a number of times, Robbie, we've been in a in the process of economic consensus where free trade, globalisation, privatisation, economic rationalism, all of this stuff has been accepted as the god of economics. Yep. That is falling over. What people are seeing with electricity prices today, right, where people are paying anything from 23 to 35 cents a kilowatt hour, I mean, amongst the great hydro projects in the 30s, people were paying 2 cents an hour. Now, we should only be paying somewhere between 7 and 10, per, 10 cents per kilowatt hour why are we paying such high prices? Is because these policies are the policies that are killing people today. All right, this is why you need to get involved in this campaign, as we said. The solutions are there, but it's up to the people to force the government to do it. Call in, get the literature I've suggested, and get involved. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Malcolm Turnbull's new anti-terrorism force. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Finally, 
Turnbull's Home Affairs Ministry brings UK terrorism to Australia. And just quickly, for a little bit of time we've got left, Malcolm Turnbull this week, Craig, announced he's going to set up a Home Affairs Department modelled on the UK's Home Office, and that's supposedly to fight terrorism. Well, if it's modelled on the UK's Home Office, it ain't going to be fighting terrorism, it's going to be orchestrating terrorism, because that's what the United Kingdom's Home Office does. The CEC has exposed all this repeatedly. We've got a pamphlet here, Stop MI5, MI6, Run Terrorism, which goes through a lot of this in relation to the last two major terrorist attacks in the UK. MI5 is managed under the um, UK's Home Office. The, the latest instance, though, of the UK, what a fraud this all is, um, after the last terrorist attack in the UK, attention, the public was informed that there was a report that had been commissioned by the former Prime Minister David Cameron into who funds extremism in the United Kingdom. And everyone said, well, let's see the report, right? Why do we have these extremists running around? Let's see the report. Who's funding them? Last week, the UK's Home Secretary, who's in charge of that body, Amber Rudd, said, sorry, we're not going to release this report. Mm -hmm. And everyone knew why. They're protecting the Saudis, who do, everyone knows, fund terrorism and fund extremism, but more important, they're protecting the UK's own establishment, which is in bed with these Saudis, but actually use the Saudis for their purposes. And I want to play a video. If we, I can't remember if we played this before. This is a whistleblower in the United Kingdom, Nicholas Wilson, who has been a whistleblower against one of the, one of the world's biggest banks, HSBC. And in the recent UK election, he was on the hustings, which is like a candidate's debate, in his local electorate, he ran as a, as a candidate, an independent candidate, and he's up against Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary. And what you're going to witness here in this video, he, he's giving his speech, and he, as soon as he mentions HSBC, watch Rudd on the far left, she writes a note to the moderator to shut him down. So just watch it. One of the first things that happened was her husband's company, Global Capital, did a deal with HSBC in Hong Kong. And then she was in Saudi Arabia in April of this year, selling arms to BAE Systems and doing another deal for HSBC. Saudi Arabia are doing a, 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 a share sale of their national oil reserves. HSBC have got the job because Theresa May went there. Saudi Arabia are the country responsible for IS and they support IS. We supply arms to Saudi Arabia through. Awfully sorry, but Mr. Sutton, that we're on at the moment, which is about. I'm talking about Manchester. That is why I made five for sending kids from Manchester to India. Am I being censored? Okay, right, soft on crime, soft on the sort of causes of crime. They want to abolish the serious fraud office, which is independent, so that. Amber Rudd can then be in charge of prosecutions through the National Crime Agency. Sorry, which is a person who I wish to avoid. Why? I'm sorry. Come on. Come on. This is censorship. I have suffered censorship for 10 years. None of the people don't know about these things because of censorship. I'm sorry. So that, she used her power, Craig, mm -hmm. in that instance to shut him down in a public candidate's event. And he actually said, look, it was HSBC she reacted to even before he mentioned the Saudis. right? She, they they want to suppress all that, and now she's suppressed this report. And that's the British Home Office that we have just emulated with this Home Affairs Ministry. It's a fraud. It's garbage. 
Australia's already had its taste of this with the Sydney siege. Man Haron Morris's relationship with ASIO is the reason that siege happened, and we've exposed that. So this is an absolute fraud, and if you want to know more, call in and get a copy of this pamphlet, or we've documented this more at length in the latest alert service, so you can call in and get a copy of this week's issue of that. Thanks very much, Craig. Run out of time as usual. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into the CEC report. Tune in next week for more.